As we come, as you have done, to the end of chapter 3, these are the words that you read, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, doesn't that sound like a benediction? You're saying, hey, it's Sunday lunchtime. And then you come to chapter 4. And it begins, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you. So you've just had this lovely ending. And then in the next sentence, it's like a sergeant major standing you and calling you all to attention. It's clearly a division within the letter. There is part one, and then there's part two. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, is a sort of center point to the book. It says, because of the calling you have received, now therefore you should live a life worthy of that calling. The calling that we have received is what we have talked about in chapters 1 through to 3. What God has given us, all the gifts we have received in Christ, the Holy Spirit in our lives who empowers us, we have salvation because of who Jesus is, and he's given us a new ability to look at life, a new vision of life, that you and I have all the riches of heaven at our disposal. We have a new way of looking at things. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and we are blessed by God. And that seems to be a good point to say amen. Yeah, amen. Then it says, look back at this calling. Because of the calling you have received. Look back at this calling. That's our wealth in Christ. Yep, it's up there. It's very important that before we go on to part two of Ephesians, that we see our wealth in Christ. We don't let go of those three chapters. This is what I have in Christ. See, that's how grace works. God doesn't say, right, you've got to do this, 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 and this, and if you get to this standard, then I might give you a few favors. That's not how grace works. God pours grace into our life, and in the reality of that grace, with all the gifts and the strength and the power and the Holy Spirit and, and the mind of Christ, with all that, he then calls us to walk in Christ. Grace first, know the wealth, and then we'll talk about the walk. And that's what Paul does. Chapters 4 through to 6 are all about our walk in Christ. As we look at these three chapters, we're going to talk about things like how to walk in your marriage. We're going to talk about Christian parenting. We're going to talk about how God wants us to have an attitude at work. We're going to talk about how victory in Christ happens in everyday life. So you have to keep turning up Sunday by Sunday. That's the deal. Today we start by looking 
at the unity he wants us to walk in. Now, when you're given a task as a preacher to go through Ephesians 4 verses 1 to 16 in one sermon, you have to leave out stuff. Okay? There, there is too much. And there is Sunday lunch. And, and two aren't going to go together if I try to do every verse of this. So I'm going to focus on the unity theme. There are other things that, that are a bit of, of, of a, a thing that Paul goes off on a tangent. I'm going to leave that. Okay? And in fact, I'm going to deal with the first three points of the five that Paul speaks of about unity. And I'm just going to summarize the last two because I have to get to the last couple of verses because there's something surprising about the subject of unity. Something about you and me as God's people. Something that we can't achieve if we don't focus on the subject of unity. So that's what we're going to do. We're looking at the subject of unity. Now immediately we are struck by how different God's ways are to our ways. As we enter into this new section, which we know is about the Christian walk, probably we would not put unity with believers at the top of the list. In our walk with Christ, we might put home life or work life. We might put mission or evangelism. We think on these things. But God wants us to know that as we live out our lives on earth as God's people, the first question God asks of us, how do you get on with your fellow believers? How do you fare in your relationship with God's people? Are you succeeding in church life? In being part of that jigsaw puzzle that is the people of God? We're going to find out why at the end, why it is so important to deal with the subject of unity. But let's leave that for a moment. Let's look at the subject of, of how to keep unity. And I want, first of all, to say, as we look at verse 2 and onwards, <clears throat> that it tells us about certain attitudes. Okay, but when I was making out the PowerPoint, the spelling checker clicked in, and changed the word to alternatives, is that right? It changed it to alternatives. And I've said, and, well, I, I, I was doing this PowerPoint in, in Dunfanaghy on my phone, okay? Screen's very, very small. So I didn't notice that mistake until this morning. And then I said, hang on, that works. If you choose attitudes, okay, if you choose attitudes, say, I'm going to have this attitude. What you're doing is you're going, you're going to have an attitude that is an alternative to your natural instincts. So three alternatives works. See, the Holy Spirit can even work in an iPhone. Three alternatives. Three alternative attitudes you can have. And release. Verse 2. If I can find it. Uh, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Three things. Humility, gentleness, patience. Those are the alternatives I suggest to ego, anger, and frustration. As we come to look at the subject of Unity, God says we need these three things. 
Now, these are not natural instincts. We have to choose them as an alternative attitude. And they all have to do with how we relate to each other. I want to give you some definitions. Humility. Humility is not seeing ourselves as less important. It's seeing others as more important. A lot of people think that humility is putting yourself down. That's not at all. Humility is lifting the Lord up and it's lifting others up. A proud person is a person who depends on themselves. A humble person is a person who depends on the Lord. A proud person says, look at me, how great I am. A humble person says, look at them, aren't they wonderful? Humbleness. Humbleness deals with the issue of ego. And ego is a big problem in the church. I've seen it in ministers. There's a division in the church. Somebody has a go at the minister. The minister, with his ego, decides that he needs to gather up as many supporters as he can. And he does so. And before you know it, you have a church divided down the middle. Because the minister's focused on his ego. Humility is about pushing that ego down. Gentleness. Well, we men folk might say, well, that's a woman kind of thing. I know that's misogynistic, but I'm moving on. Hold bear with me. It's not. It's a great word. There's lots of pictures behind it. In the day when the New Testament was written, the word gentleness was used when you were referring to medicine that could cure people. It would be a gentle medicine. It would be a soothing medicine. It would calm you. Or it's used when referring to a wind that might push a boat along at just the right speed. It's a gentle wind. It's a, it's a useful, gentle wind. Or it's used referring to a horse, a stallion, that had been broken and you could ride it. And God says, I want this to be an attitude in your life, that there's a gentleness in your life. Gentleness is not weakness. Gentleness is power and strength under control. Not being used for the ego, not being used to bully your way through things. Gentleness is when you can say, I'm getting slightly frustrated or agitated, but I'm going to control it. It's not going to come out. I'm going to push it down. And then there's patience. <coughs> A translation of this from the Greek is long-tempered, long-tempered. And Jesus is the best example of that. Jesus was patient with his disciples. He loved them. That doesn't mean he never spoke a harsh word to them or never pointed out some of their struggles, but he patiently loved them even through their problems and no matter that they needed sorted out at times, he was always on their side. Patience is putting up with problems. What do you think would happen if one day you said, Lord, I need more patience. Lord, I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray you'll give me patience. What do you think will happen the next day? 
I'll tell you what will happen. The Lord will send you the most annoying, difficult, argumentative, problematic person you have ever met. And God will say, there you are. <laughs> Be patient. And we're just starting to touch on why this is so important. But we'll hold back on it for another wee while. So first of all, we need three alternatives to wrong instincts or three attitudes. We need humility, gentleness, patience. The next thing we learn in this passage of Scripture is, and how to keep unity, is we must determine to work at it. That's what Paul says. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Why would the Bible say make every effort if there wasn't some effort required on our part? Make every effort. It's hard work. Even to go out in the middle of the week sometimes to be in that closer fellowship, the small groups or the, the prayer group or whatever. The number one reason why people don't get involved in, in those smaller fellowship groups is because it takes time and effort. And they think, I don't have time to make the effort. Make every effort, it says. Determine to work at it. But as you do, understand God's process. The effort is ours. Make every effort. It's talking about you, it's talking about me, it's saying you have to make an effort to make this work. But that's not the whole process. Make every effort, but it also says that the unity is the Spirit's. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. The unity belongs to the Spirit. The effort that we're making is not for us to create unity. We don't have to do that. The effort that we're making is to keep the unity that the Spirit has already given us. And we'll come to that in a moment. What we're trying to do is to enjoy the unity that the Holy Spirit has already given to us as a gift. Make every effort to keep the unity. It's the Holy Spirit's unity. Then it says, through the bond of peace. The bond of peace is the cross. We studied it earlier in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 14, for he himself is our peace. Ephesians 2, 16, and we are one today, we are, sorry, we are, one, we are in one body, reconciled both of them to God through the cross. The bond of peace is the cross. If you're having to struggle with unity with somebody, another believer, one of the things that can really help is to close your eyes and in your minds, I picture both of you standing there at the foot of the cross looking up to Jesus. Realize that he died for you and them. The cross, when you bring that into your relationships, when you bring that into your life, that's where peace happens when we keep our eye on the cross. So three things I'm going to focus on, there are five. The first is develop three alternatives or three attitudes, determine to work at it, 
And then thirdly, doctrinal agreement. And you see a list there in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. One body. That's a surprise. There's only one church. That's not the impression that we give when we have all our different denominational uh, labels. But the reality is there is only one church. And there's one spirit. And that's the spirit of Jesus Christ. And there's one hope. We're all looking forward to the same heaven. And one Lord, only one Lord that we're going to bow our knee to, Jesus Christ. And and one faith, we trust in the same Jesus to deliver us from sin. And one baptism, we're all being marked by God with the same Holy Spirit as believers. And one God. There's not a different brand of God for different people. This is the foundation of unity. And if as believers you don't agree about these things, you don't agree that this is the foundation, well then there's a big problem. But if we are agreed in these essentials, then that's a solid foundation for unity. We're one body. Oh, there might be Baptist and Brethren and Methodist and Anglican and, and Presbyterian. And, well, to be honest, these days, if you walk down some of the streets in Belfast, you'll see all sorts of names of all sorts of uh, uh, churches. But we're one body. That means whatever hurts them hurts us. You can't hurt another believer without hurting yourself. It's impossible. We are only one body. We're one spirit. That means the Spirit within us agrees. Do you think you have a Holy Spirit within you saying, I'm on your side? And then there's a Holy Spirit in that other believer, and he's thinking the same thing. Holy Spirit, you're on my side. Do you think that's the way it works? That the Holy Spirit somehow works in disagreement with himself? No way. The Holy Spirit within each of us if we're believers, agrees. You can count on that. That the Holy Spirit working in both is not working against himself. He's working towards himself. We've got one hope. That means we're going to spend eternity together. We can count on that. And I can think of some people to spend eternity together with them, and I can say, oh boy. Or the other way, it's a long time eternity to have to avoid somebody. So if we're going to get on in heaven, because that is our hope, we might as well start now. And we have one Lord. That means we are all servants. 
Imagine a country where everybody was a king or queen. Everyone would be giving orders and nobody would be following them. And I think, I think the world is going slightly in that direction at this minute in time. Consider some of the major ways disunity comes into the church. Individuals mourning. The minister doesn't visit me, but they visit them. The elder doesn't visit me, but they visit them. Nobody shook my hand coming into church this morning. The collector didn't smile. Oh, I was going to say the collector didn't smile and he came to get the offering, but you've got rid of that problem. Somebody's sitting on my seat. Now, how is any of that showing the attributes of a servant to a Lord? No, that's just the consumerism of the world creeping into our hearts. And we choose a different attitude. We choose humility. We have one faith. That means we agree on the most important things. We may have disagreements about small secondary things, but the essential things we agree on. Someone once said, in the essentials of faith, unity, and firmness. In the secondary things of faith, tolerance. And in everything, love. That's the work of unity. We have one baptism. We are marked by God as believers. Let's not bother whether it's adult baptism or child baptism, let's set that to the side. But we have the mark of God upon us. If the world looked at us and saw us disagreeing, the world could say, well, why are those twins falling out? Because they look the same to me. They seem to believe the same things. They do the same things. They go to church. They have all the same marks of faith about them. Why are they falling out? They're twins. And we have one God. And of course, that's the one that has this little bit added to it. God is over all and through all and in all. One of the best openings of a Christian book is Rick Warren's book called The Purpose Driven Life. And it begins by saying, it's not about you. What a great start for a book. It's not about you. None of life as a believer is about us. It's about God. He is over all and through all and in all. So when you get into a tizzy because someone has stood in your toes somehow or another, remember, it's not about you. When you haven't been given your place, remember, it's not about you. When people aren't sympathetic to you, remember, it's not about you. There are, there's more to say, but time is gone. I anticipated this. You'll see briefly... Another slide, two other points. Delight in your God-given gifts, that's another unity. Don't think everybody has to be the same, they've got different gifts. 
and then fifthly, depend on God-given leaders. Uh, some ministers said to me, oh, I don't like committee meetings. I don't like Kirk session meetings. Why not? He says, well, they disagree. They have different opinions. I come up with a brilliant idea and somebody says, well, maybe not. And I said, hold on a minute. Let me tell you why you have leadership. It's so that those discussions take place in organized discussion, speaking through the chair, not addressing each other. Uh, the, the argument is presented. You're not having an argument with the people. You're just presenting the argument. All those things that we do in Kirk session meetings and, and committee meetings. And do you know why we do that? Because we can work all the tricky stuff out so that the congregation doesn't have to debate it in the car park or on the street afterwards. Of course there should be differences of opinion in committee and Kirk session so that things get sorted out there safely and we're not bickering about it in the congregation. We need leaders to carry out jobs. And then to get to the last bit, which is where I must finish because time is away. This wonderful end of this section. Uh, verse 14. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, who is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The outcome for people who take unity seriously, who who develop the three alternatives, humility, gentleness, patience, who, who work at unity, who, who sees unity not as a, a, a project of theirs, but it's the work of God, and who has a focus on the cross because that's the only way you keep peace. And these other things that I've just mentioned, the outcome of that is that you transition from infancy to maturity. From infancy to maturity. There are people I know who say, I don't go to church anymore. Why not? Fall out with them. I find I can read my Bible at home and pray at home. I can just be a stronger Christian at home. No, you can't. When somebody says to me, I can be a Christian at home, I say, yes, you can, just not a very good one. Because the way we develop into maturity is to live together, to work together, to serve together. And like pebbles on a beach rubbing up against each other, getting the rough edges knocked off us as we each other jostle and maneuver and try to get our ego under control and have humility and patience and gentleness and every day turning up at church or whatever organization you're involved in and saying 
I am going to demonstrate the grace of God in my life. I'm going to live at the foot of the cross in this church. And do you know something? It's a bit like that prayer, God give me patience. You know, God will allow difficult things to happen, but only to strengthen us. And as we focus on being God's people together, we will grow. And without it, we won't.